This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. This episode of Pass the Mic is brought to you by Compassion and Conviction, the AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. Stay tuned for a special interview with the authors Justin Gibney and Michael Weir later in the show. And don't forget that you can get Compassion and Conviction, the AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement, right now, wherever books are sold. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me, as always, is the president of The Witness, the man, the myth, the legend, the New York Times bestselling author, Mr. Blue Check verified himself, Jamar Tisby. What's going on, brother? I'm about to tell the future. Predict the future. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. You're pro- okay, be prophetic. Let's go. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's uh it's this in this podcast, you are gonna drop some wisdom so heavy, people are gonna have to sit down. Uh-uh, don't do this. Don't do I'm just gonna say it. Don't do this. I'm telling the future right now. Do not do this. So you're gonna okay? wanna tune in and be maybe like, ah, even turn like, it up just so uh-uh, you don't miss nah. anything. I know you listen do to this, I know you listen at one and a half two two X speed. You you might have to slow it down just to mm-hmm. just to pick up what he's dropping. That's all I'm gonna say. Y'all don't listen to him. Don't listen to this. Okay. I'm not I don't want to be set up with those expectations. As you would say, don't you put that evil on me, Ricky Bobby. Okay, don't do it. Look, man. This Listen, I just want to, before we get into our episode, I just want to thank the people for rocking with us as we've had these kind of extended interview conversations with the end campaign leaders, Justin Gibney and Michael Weir, advertising their new book, Compassion and Conviction, the end campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement. And it's been really good. It's been something where we've been able to unpack their political philosophy and their, you know, how it intersects with their faith. And so that's been really, really helpful. And I want to encourage people to go out and get the book. We have a special promo code for you that is going to give you a special discount on the book if you order it through InterVarsity Press. You will get 30% off. You hear me? 30% off and free shipping. Jamar, that's a steal, bro. 30% 30% off 30% and off. free shipping. Don't walk, run. <laughs> Click. Come on, Bye. man. You better. <laughs> Look, 30% and free shipping. That's some serious stuff right there, man. Look, that's that is a serious discount. You actually all you have to do is type in a promo code offer20f. I don't know who put that promo code out, but offer 20f, okay? Offer 20f all caps and you put that promo code in the checkout and you will get 30% off and free shipping. You remember that, right? You're going to remember that. You're going to remember that, Jamar. Offer 20F, right? It's a promo. You're good. You're going to get 30% off and free shipping. That's it. That's the most important thing, all right? Listen, guys, I want to get into a, a very important conversation. So much of our world has been you know, clouded by white supremacy and clouded by racism that we are still celebrating first. 
we are still thinking about symbolic entrances into places where we have been systemically denied. We're still celebrating first, still celebrating the things that are groundbreaking achievements for us as a people. And this past week, our whole entire world was taken over by another first. And this was the first Black woman to actually run on the Democratic Party platform as a vice presidential nominee. Of course, we're talking about the junior senator from California, Kamala Harris. She is the first Black woman to run for the seat, also the first Asian-American woman as well, and only the third female vice presidential running mate on a major party ticket. It's significant. It took over um, the social media conversation. It's taken over the political discourse. And many people who became familiar with Kamala Harris, based upon her presidential run earlier this year, which seems years ago, but it was earlier this year, have been attracted to her policies, have been attracted to the way that she carries herself, have been attracted to the fact that they can see her as a future president of these United States. So it is a historic moment. And Jamar, I don't know about you, but listen, most black church people are on Facebook, so I'm on Facebook too. Okay. So that's how we connect. Okay. Yeah. So you got to explain I saw, that. <laughs> I know you're a Twitter guy, but this is work yeah, related. So I saw, exactly, no, but it's, it's, it's relational too. It's relational. I don't, I don't really think, I don't really think that Facebook is that bad. I just think Facebook gets bad. If you got the right friends, Facebook is good. But if you don't have the right friends, Facebook can get bad real quick. And it's awful it's in the algorithm slow. and all that. To me. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's another conversation. But what <laughs> I was going to ask you is, did you see people, how did you see people reacting to this? Like, did you see excitement? Did you see kind of an angst? Did you see nervousness? Like, how did you see people reacting to this historic appointment? I think what how I would describe it is excitement mixed with trepidation. So this works on so many levels. First of all, y'all, get her name right. Kamala. Kamala Harris. Okay? Like the word Kamala. Y'all can do it. We believe in y'all. We yeah. believe in y'all. You can do it. We know you can. You can do it. And it's so important, right? Like getting the names right is a sign of respect. And just because it is not, you know, sort of part of dominant culture, lingo names, Eurocentric names, doesn't mean you can't put in the effort to learn how to say it. Kamala. Okay. So what I saw was excitement on various levels, right? So for all the reasons you mentioned, first person, uh, one of the, one of the first uh, black women on a major party ticket, but also first uh, person of Indian descent. And so South Asians are, are celebrating this moment too. Not just black girls, black and brown girls looking and seeing a picture of what could be, right, in, in Kamala Harris. So, so there's that joy and celebration of a first, which is also mingled with like, dang, we still talking about firsts, right? Like you mentioned, right? Right. But then at the mm -hmm. same time, it's this trepidation because we have seen what happens to women of color, especially women with African descent, when they're in the public sphere and especially in politics. So people were bracing themselves for the sexism, for the racism that would have already come with this announcement and that um, Kamala Harris has endured her entire public life, if not more. So, yeah. so it was like, 
it, it was a moment of celebration for a lot of people, but then there's more reactions. I don't know if we can get into this later or not, right? Because then you've got, you know, different reactions from progressives and moderates, politically speaking. Mm-hmm. You've got different yeah. reactions. Um, one of the one of the other things that made this announcement interesting for me personally was it felt like it came, it felt like it was not swallowed up, but it was alongside of so much other important news that was happening at the same time. Right. Namely, yeah, we're in this, a pandemic, man. Still, right. We're in a and pandemic. We're in a regime, so it's like every day we're getting new numbers. We're getting school is is starting back up as we record this. So lots of people are uh, questioning the wisdom of getting back in person, or what should we do? And then there's this crisis with the United States Postal. Postal Service, which is having implications and ramifications for the election in November. So we have this momentous announcement, which I feel like in most other election years would be like stop everything, wall to wall coverage for at least 24 to 48 hours. Right. And and this is just one of many important news stories that's happening right now. So it was a bit it was it, it it takes nothing away from the significance of this but it felt a bit diluted in in a very crowded news field yeah and let's talk a little bit more about that excitement cuz i think for a lot of people it was an exciting choice right it was an exciting choice for the biden campaign to make and i know they had promised that they were going to be choosing a woman for the role of running mate but you know you never know what type of woman that's going to be or you know the experience level or the age or the ethnicity there were just all kinds of different considerations that people were thinking about and so for black women to see that the party takes a move towards highlighting their concerns and interests considering that they've been so loyal to the democratic party platform and ticket I think that was very exciting. It seemed like a very wise choice. Now, again, we have to say we're not political analysts and we're also two black men talking about this, right? So we understand and recognize we're self-aware of our limitations here. But I think the excitement of seeing someone like Kamala Harris go from a, a, a presidential campaign where she had some moments, but maybe had to pull out a little bit quicker than some of the other candidates in some of those obstacles that exist for black uh, men and women candidates for president that don't exist for some of the white candidates. Um, that was very fascinating as well. So it was, it was exciting on those levels to be celebrating first and to have this symbolic achievement. But you mentioned some trepidation. And I think I'll kick it off by saying sexism and misogynoir, specifically as it relates to black women, and racism, virulent racism, is still on the rise and it is still present. And so every time we celebrate an accomplishment, what you recognize is that there will be white supremacist, white nationalist forces that seek to dissuade and undermine the legitimacy of black achievement and black accomplishment. It happens all the time. And so we know this because we had a preview of this with the Obamas. We had a preview of this with not just the president, but also his wife, First Lady Michelle Obama, who was treated kind of with the the vitriol of a vice president, was treated with the vitriol as someone who had actually run for president. Despite being overqualified for that role, she could have stood on her own politically, um, extremely gifted, but she herself was the victim of that misogynoir. So I think there was trepidation in in that um, for many of us because we don't want to relive that. We don't want to see that happen again, right? Yeah, absolutely. We don't want to see that happen again. And is it... <sighs> It's it's the sad reality in the United States that a moment that really should be 
so much more sort of pure celebration is it's almost like it's almost like we have been conditioned because of racism to to expect a backlash to expect right. a punch Whitelash, in the face yeah. yes you yeah. know what i'm saying so so when we do have these moments of celebration right like when john lewis passed it's of course a, a moment of mourning and and tragedy and loss but it's also a time when you want to celebrate his life but in the same breath we're saying don't co-opt his legacy don't it, isn't it interesting, Jamar? It, yep. Isn't this interesting that we get more acclaim and attention when we die than, than when we accomplish something? Isn't that yeah. interesting to you? That we get more acclaim posthumously in death when we are no longer able to disrupt than when yeah, exactly. we achieve something that could actually fundamentally change the system while we're living. Yeah, we're not dangerous anymore once we're dead. Because mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. I can control the narrative. Now I can pick and choose from your life and your legacy what I want to lift up and celebrate, which, of course, is what has happened with Martin Luther King Jr. and so many other of our heroes who who have uh, gone on from this life, right? Uh, so, yeah, we do tend to get more acclaim in death than in life, especially when we're agitating for change and racial progress. And I think that's what we... What we know is going to happen with Kamala Harris, uh, regardless of how this election turns out, we know that the next several months are going to be a slog of misinformation, disinformation, dehumanizing words. Already, they've started with some echoes of birtherism, right? Because her dad is Jamaican and her mom is of Indian descent. And so they're like, is she qualified? Is she Can she be vice president? Yes, she can. Like, that's not even been a question. Uh, until it is right, so so it's always right. this, of course. you know, celebration of progress while at the same time bracing for what we know is coming next, which is just sad. I mean, it's just yeah. ugh, deflating. And so we have these, you know, kind of mix of feelings of, of you know, kind of nervous excitement about this symbolism, but it is symbolism, right? It, it isn't the necessarily the institution of policies. It isn't necessarily meaning that now we will get the things that we desire to, to get. It doesn't mean that we're going to achieve the demands that we've had in this moment. It's actually brought up a lot of questions. And we want to talk about those questions today because I think it's good for us to have this discussion because I think it fans out into all layers of our lives. But as we think about a candidate, as we think about any political candidate, I think we've seen over the past few years, especially the limitations of celebrating symbolism as the sole pathway to our liberation. It has been a limited endeavor. Yes, we celebrated the first black president, the first black family in the White House. But many people look back on that time as beneficial in some ways and disappointing in others. Many people look back on that time as helpful to the Black community in some ways and harmful to us in others. Uh, many people look at the ways in which the previous administration you know, handled some of the war doctrine and foreign policy as extremely harmful to people who look like us, right? Even though it may have been helpful to people who look like us in other ways. So there's this duality of the system that exists. And these conversations, again, are brought up. And you mentioned it a little bit earlier about progressives and moderates and, and liberals and this, this running conversation. 
And I think it is honest of us and real of us to admit that she doesn't necessarily, Kamala Harris doesn't necessarily have a a perfect record, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's important to admit that as a senator and then even before that as a prosecutor, uh, she doesn't necessarily have the best record or a record that is spotless and unblemished, right? Yeah. I mean, in, in the big picture, as a prosecutor, she is on the side of the state. She is on the side of the government, which in our political in our criminal justice system, which is dysfunctional, has meant that she's made decisions as a prosecutor, as a leader that have not been best for other black people. And and folks have called her to account for that. I mean, as a as a Democratic candidate in the in the primaries, that was a, a frequent topic of conversation was her record particularly as an attorney general, but also also as a senator. And so, yeah, we have to realize, like, especially for progressives, this was not the the progressive ticket they wanted, whether Biden or or Harris. Right. Um, right. And so, you know, they wanted Bernie, they wanted Elizabeth Warren, they wanted someone else uh, to head up the ticket. And then even for VP, they were excited about folks like Stacey Abrams, for example, uh, as more politically progressive. And so right. there's there's almost a division among politically progressive folks. There are some who see support of this ticket and of Kamala Harris as sort of copping out or um, compromising and are talking about not voting, voting third party, writing in, whatever it might be. Which is so fascinating because, I mean, if you think, if you take a look at her stances and you take a look at, you know, some of the things that she's done, it is fascinating to consider without necessarily agreeing or disagreeing with that, how progressive her platform actually is, right? Yeah. <laughs> her platform is extremely progressive in normal election standards, right? I mean, the whole if we're ticket. talking about, yeah. right, it's extremely progressive. But if you're looking right now at the moment that we're in, well, then it maybe it's not as progressive, especially on areas of criminal justice, on That's economics right. Right. And, and, and financial matters. As people would desire, and and I kind of take it out of the progressive space, not because I don't think that's a worthwhile conversation, but I think members of the black community, I think that's you know that's where we're coming from, a black Christian perspective, and members of the black community have questions, you know, trying to figure out not is she credible, not is she black, because that is not the question, but are her policies actually going to benefit us in the yeah. long run? Yeah. And I think that's a legitimate question for us to ask of any politician, regardless of the symbolism behind them. And I think, though, it was so interesting, right, because um, there were conversations about, you know, it, it, it's easy to call her the first, but as you said, she's one of the first um, Black women in, on a major party ticket like this, right? So, so, so this all goes to the response and the reaction, right? So part of it was really placing her in the historical stream, like exactly who came before her, what led up to this. Also, in the midst of this is her um, ethnic and racial identity, right? Yes, she's Black. She's also Indian. And how do we navigate that when uh, typically the, the binary is between Black and white? And then comes her record, 
right? So so some people are excited about her. I got to say, I was a bit relieved <laughs> that uh, Biden chose her because mm-hmm. we know the stakes in this election, right? We've got to get this man out of the White House. And that means Democrats have to get it right. But Democrats have a penchant, especially at the national level, for doing the exact wrong thing. And so I think we were all kind of on pins and needles. Would would Biden choose someone who had name recognition, um, all of that stuff? I think what Kamala brings is that d- she does have name recognition. She's been vetted on a national stage as a senator, attorney general and uh, Democratic uh, candidate for the presidency, for the nominee. And then uh, she's she's extremely intelligent and skilled, right? We saw this on display during uh, Senate committee hearings when she's questioning people. Like, absolutely. I loved your tweet, Tyler. You said. Awesome (laughs) prayers to Mr. Pence, man. (laughs) For the debate. Someone said he in the prayer closet. That that joint sent me. Is it Mike Pence in his prayer closet right now? I would not want to be on the debate. I don't know if he's like that, but hey, I don't know if he believes like that, but hey, one of those, one of these Mm. evangelical council people needs to annoy him with oil, man. They need to, you know, (laughs) they need to take the olive oil out of the bag. My, my, my. Come on, man. Um, So, so all of that goes to the reaction. And then we're talking about symbolism and policy, right? Okay. Let me say something about this that that may come out of a a little bit out of left field, because this is sort of new. Okay, let's go. Let's go. We like that. So about symbolism, right? So you set up the the very necessary contrast between, you know, sort of symbolic victories and substantive victories, if you will, because it's a symbolic victory to have a woman of color like Kamala Harris on a major party ticket as vice president. Very likely that if she, if they win the election, she could be next president. Like that's huge, right? But at the same time, it's not voting rights. It's not reforming the criminal justice system. It's not reducing anti-Black police brutality. Those are the real substantive demands. I'll say this in support of symbols. So symbols tell stories. Stories, a collection of stories forms a narrative about a people, about a group, about a nation, and narratives form identity. And I'll say as an example of this, the state flag of Mississippi, right? So it recently changed in in the wake of these protests uh, over the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and more. And many people can look at it, well, it's just a flag, right? Like it's a symbolic victory. It's not changing anything about the fact that Mississippi, you know, leaders in Mississippi still want the kids to go back to school in person. And that's very dangerous, right? We need to change this stuff. It's, It's not changing anything about the poverty in a state like Mississippi. True, 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 true enough. But that flag has told a story, a particular story for over a century. It coming down, being removed, changing helps us to start to write a different story, which helps us to start to write a different narrative, which helps to form our identity. Am I saying it's the whole thing? No. All I'm saying is this, Tyler. There are benefits to symbolic victories, which I don't think you were saying there weren't. I'm just saying I don't want to discount the symbolism uh, uh, of a of of a woman of color in this VP spot and what it could do and the narrative yeah. and the identity it helps shape. No, I think that's totally fair. I, you know, I think that many of us though are trying to figure out, you know, what is actually going to get us free. You know, we've had this conversation about liberation and freedom in limited ways. I think we're we're far behind our parents and grandparents. I think in this conversation, because I think many of them are organizing where we're talking 
uh, we're tweeting, you know, we're putting up posts on, on social media, not necessarily organizing, right? But I think we've had this conversation about symbols and we've had this conversation about how it intersects in everyday spaces, right? I think every one of us can point to a person in our lives who is Black just like one of us, who is in a position of power and influence, but only wielded that power and influence for the advancement of their body versus the liberation of others' bodies, right? So I think we can all point to an employer, a teacher, a coworker, maybe even a pastor who was in a position of authority and was Black, but did not necessarily sacrifice and do the things that were necessary, not just to benefit them, but to benefit everyone who came behind them. And I think that's the question that many of us are asking, is how do we balance this tension, now my favorite word, this tension between the symbols and between the systemic reframing of a system that has disadvantaged us for 400 years? How do we balance the need for symbols with the need for structural change? I think that's the question, Jamar. And I think that's something that many Black Christians and Black people are wrestling with how to do, and if it's possible for us to reconcile them. It's an eternal question, isn't it? Let, let me... Well, and, and let me, before we get to that, I think it's important that we take a break, we let it breathe, we'll go to some ads, and then we'll come right back and talk a little bit more about symbols versus structural change. I'm sitting here with Justin Gibney and Michael Ware of the End Campaign, authors of the book Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. One of the striking quotes of the book is, laws are always an application of some group's values. I love the way you place that. And I think it's true. And I think it's striking. And you mentioned this, citizens don't often agree on what those values should be. And so that's where we get the the polarization. That's where we get the disagreement. But with this in mind, and I'll start with you, Michael, what do you feel the solution should be when there is that core value disagreement? Because as a Christian, what I'm seeing is it's clear that certain people have disagreements about laws and policies. And it's clear that I think there are some policies that are helpful and others that are harmful. But when we get down to the core, even even among people in the faith, right, even among believers, there are some core value disagreements or some priority value disagreements. So what, what do you feel the solution is when there is that core value disagreement as to where it should be and also what it, what it should be as well? The way our system is set up or is supposed to be set up is it gives pretty wide lanes for people to make political decisions, even on these values issues. And they're up to the democratic process. You know, we, we don't we don't live in a country that gives us the answer on all of these moral questions and we just have to accommodate ourselves to those answers. It's something for deliberation, right? Like the founders of liberal democracy thought that as long as men were free to, and they were talking about men, as long as citizens were free to think and to follow rational pursuits, then they could come to their own conclusions about what was moral, what was right. And so the backstop to that is supposed to be these fundamental protections for those who lose <laughs> or on the losing side of some of those battles, that free speech is protected, freedom of religion is protected, that you ought to be free to associate. Obviously in our history, that backstop hasn't protected everybody. Part of our sort of moving 
forward, we have to acknowledge that these debates are going to be had about what is moral, what is right, what is going to be decided. I think the temptation is because in the past, some of these kinds of decisions were made without taking into account those who were kind of on the losing side of those decisions. I mean, you can talk about race, you can talk about sexuality, you can talk about economic decisions. We're just made without holding into account those who were not privileged in those decisions. I think the temptation is to proceed in the same way. What we need to do is think about lawmaking as how you hold a society together, how you put laws into place that are for the common good, that aren't about zero-sum politics. But that is the impulse in, in our politics right now which is we're going to battle this out in the public square. And if my side wins, your side's out of power. And if your side wins, then, then I'm, I'm without hope. I'm stranded. And that's a bad place to be for a democracy like ours. But Tyler, you zero in on, on something critical. I believe Christians are the ones with clear resources, not saying Christians are the only ones who could do this, but Christians have clear resources for loving their political enemy, for pursuing what they think is right with consideration for those who disagree. And we need to make clear to Christians that those resources are available to them, not just in their personal and their private lives, but in politics as well and moving forward in, in that way. Justin, you've been really consistent on this idea of approaching the value disagreement. Even in 2016, you talked a lot about this, this concept before we, we reached this polarity. So what would you say about how Christians, and let me personalize it, how Black Christians approach value disagreement? Because I know the AND campaign is broader, but let's zero in on it. How do Black Christians approach a value disagreement, especially because many of us see the ways in which the application of some group's values, which are typically the people in power, have disadvantaged our communities and disadvantaged the people that we know and maybe even disadvantaged us personally. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I you know, um, a lot of the a lot of the foundation of the black church is going to come out of the Exodus motif. And I think that I think that plays a role in how we frame these conversations. And so when I go into a conversation with a white evangelical or something like that, I, I say, you know, one thing you got to understand about us and, and me, I understand we're not a monolith, but generally, is that we would rather do anything than be on the side of the oppressor, right? And so the first thing I think is how we frame these conversation is where, you know, where is, where's the least of these, right? Who, who, where's the person in need? And let me make sure whatever I do, I'm not on the opposite side of that. Right. And so when we approach these values conversations and you get frustration from uh, evangelicals on some of this stuff, why don't you fight for this? Well, unless it's clear that I'm not fighting on the side of the oppressor, you're not going to get me. You're not going to get me to, to, to have that conversation so in that way. So I think our first value is placed on being with the oppressed, uh, making sure that we are are lifting up those who have been underserved areas who have been under, you know, had underinvestment. That's where the frame, I think, in the, in the black church comes from. And, and I think that's, I think rightly so, based on the context of what America has brought to us. But it is that kind of exodus motif of saying, no, I'm gonna say, let my people go before I'm gonna help you, you know, hurt people, even if it's people I disagree with, right? Even if there's some nuance in there, I'm gonna err on the side uh, of that kind of, li that liberation and, and fighting against the oppressor. That is so good. <laughs> that is so, Good. I think that's something that we miss in this conversation a lot. Well, gentlemen, the book is Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. Justin Gibney, Michael Weir of The End Campaign, thank you so much 
for your work and thank you for doing the hard work, the difficult work of giving us a framework for faithful civic engagement. We appreciate it. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. And we're back here on Pass the Mic. Jamar and I have been framing the recent appointment of Kamala Harris as the presumptive vice presidential nominee for the Democratic Party in this context of symbols versus structural change. Jamar really eloquently talked about how symbols create stories and stories build a narrative. And I'm coming from the perspective of many of us are sitting in tension here that, yes, symbols are important, but we desire for symbols to actually lead to change so that bodies are not harmed, even as symbols are exalted. Jamar, you were getting ready to say something about this being an eternal question, something that we constantly wrestle with. Right. And so because it's such a big, broad question, it's sort of hard to talk about in the abstract. So let's put it back in the context of of Harris and, and the Democratic ticket and politics more generally, right? So it's really interesting that if you look at the current platform for this Democratic Party ticket, it is more progressive than Hillary Clinton's was in 2016 and more progressive than Obama's was in 08 or 12, right? So it's really interesting that, and and I say this, I I know people have a frame for progressive, right? Um, Gosh, there's a lot we could say about it. All I'm saying on, on big issue items from Medicare to the possibility of, of, at least talking about reparations, right? To, um, you know, how to deal with COVID in the environment and climate, all of those things. It's trended more to the left pretty quickly uh, in the last 10 to 12 years, right? So it's important to, to mm-hmm. recognize context here. So you're talking about what's possible, even with a biracial black and Indian woman on the VP ticket, right? And there's an element of, of, you know, how politics function or dysfunction mm-hmm. as, as the case may be. Right. And so this is not necessarily the president or VP folks wanted when there were 24 people potentially vying for, uh, uh, the democratic nomination, but it's who we've got. It's who they've got now. Right. So, so now it becomes, who can we push? Who can we push further? And so the question of symbol versus structural change is you call people to account for who they symbolize and who they represent, right? So Kamala Harris, as someone of African and Indian ancestry, has a direct tie to those communities and for doing what's best for those communities. So I don't necessarily count. I mean, there are some individuals who, who maybe you can count on to do that just because of who they are, but also the way this works or the way it's supposed to work is that the people who these officials represent put the pressure on them to make those changes. So I say all that to say, yes, we want a candidate who starts off as far down that road as possible, but if they're not there, 
it's also our responsibility to help get them there. No, I think that's really helpful, Jamar. But I, I think the question that many of us are asking as well is, is political liberation actually possible within this system? Like, is it even possible? Ooh. Like, and I think that's what that's mm. what it gets back to. Yes, we should steer people according to what the system allows and what our rights are and what our abilities are within the system. But is there a problem with the system itself <laughs> that prevents mm. us from even achieving liberation? Yes. Right. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm I always going to ask the more. I'm always going to ask the more fundamental question, right? Like I'm always going to take always gonna back make to, me sound like impossible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, define liberation, right? Right. So, so, so right. part of it right. is what do we mean by liberation, especially in the political realm? Um, there's a spectrum, right? But there's also like spiritual, existential liberation that that sort of transcends any particular political system, and so, and so. I don't think it's inconsequential that – what did Martin Luther King said? Basically something about, you know, it may not change somebody's heart, but if the law can keep them from killing me, that's pretty yeah, good. Yeah, the, the law can't make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me, and I think that's important too. Exactly. So, so like the political system can only do what it's capable of doing, but what it's capable of doing is pretty important. Like it could provide Medicare for all, potentially. It could provide stimulus checks in a pandemic. It could provide uh, laws that, that are more fair and equitable in the, in the criminal justice system, right? But, you know, yeah, there are deeper questions about, you know, should policing as we know it now even exist? Is it redeemable, reclaimable, right? Um, the current dual party system, is that inherently um, not only limited, but it, it's self-destructive, right? It, it, it can't function. So I think those are definitely questions, but for what the law or politics can do, let's make it, let's make it work for us as much as possible. Yeah. So this is all leading back to a more fundamental question, Jamar, that you and I were discussing recently um, in something completely unrelated uh, to this particular main topic. But I brought up this idea, and it kind of connects to what we do Here at The comes. Witness. And I think <laughs> I brought up this idea. I think it connects to what we do at The Witness. The Witness exists not simply to be a Black Christian collective, just to be Black and Christian and a collective. That's not why we, we don't exist just for that, right? We don't exist just to be Black for Black's sake, just to be Christian for Christian's sake. We exist so that our audience and the people who follow us can be free. And I think there's this wave that we have to be careful of. And that wave is celebrating Blackness because it's du jour, because it is the in thing to do. It is claiming Blackness when it is advantageous to us. Um, while not carrying the responsibility of the broader community. And the way I've put it is, I think there is a wrestle within all of us in positions of power to either seek validation or liberation. Do you want to be validated in your Blackness? Or do you want to liberate not just yourself, but other Black bodies? Do you want to be validated as the first Black such and such? Or do you want to liberate other people so that that will become unnecessary and quickly become a footnote in history because you opened the door for so many people behind you. 
Do you want validation or liberation? And I think the problem is liberation comes with a cost. And I'm not saying we've achieved it. I'm not saying we're doing it. But I think that's the story kind of the witness, right? Like we had to make a choice. Do we want validation from the people who could give it to us, legitimacy? Or do we want liberation for our people, which says, I'll take the hit so that not just so that we can, oh, we're black and and look at how black we are. That's performative. That does us no good. It does you no good. But we want to actually provide you with tools that lead to your not just physical liberation, but your spiritual liberation as well. So what do you want? You want validation or liberation? I think that's what a lot of people are asking. I'm just trying to give words and language to it is do we want to be validated as the first to enter a door? Or do we want to be known as the person who changed the room once the door was open? I mean, that's the question, right? That's what we should be asking. It's massively important. That is massively important. I think. And and I think, and, and just to add on to that, and it's, it's not that those symbols aren't important. The symbols are important. I'm a narrative guy. I'm a story guy. It's beautiful. But it really doesn't, we have to be careful about being an easily appeased people. Hmm. We have to be careful about being a people that are easy to placate. Now, part of that is, is people influencing our thought process as to what we deserve to accept, right? Hmm. And then another part of that is what we allow ourselves to accept. No, this is a symbol and this is fine. It's great that we have this symbol and we applaud you and celebrate you. But as we always say in, in where I come from, don't forget where you came from. We always joke, don't forget about us little people. Mm-hmm. No, but there's there's actually a stinging truth to that, right? No, don't forget about the people who whose shoulders you stood on to get to the place where you're at. No, don't forget about all the people who, when you didn't have anything, gave you a little gas money, right? Mm-hmm. Gave you an opportunity to go to college, like paid some of your bills, like took up a collection for you at the end of service. Don't forget about those people too. And so I, I, I'm not I'm not saying that that's not what Kamala Harris is thinking about. And I don't know her heart. And I'm trying to bring it down to where we live, Yeah, this which is... is what good is it for us to be successful achievers and to be the first black this and the first black Christian that and, and to talk about our blackness and black, 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 black. If what if if the actual the actual implications and applications of what we believe and how our power and influence is distributed does not liberate. What a waste. What good does it do us? There's so many levels to this. So, so this validation liberation framing, I think is extremely important for a couple of reasons. One, it helps us distinguish and identify how whether skin folk or kin folk, if I could put it that way. So, <laughs> oh boy, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> so there are black folks who we want to celebrate because of the symbolism, mostly because of the positions they're in or what they represent, maybe in terms of earthly success, right? They're wealthy or they're athletes or they're politicians or whatever. But the black person who's there for validation will adopt black cultural aesthetics for the purpose of appearing authentic Mm. in front of white people. And so that's an appropriation 
of a culture that they may indeed have been a part of, but they're deploying it for their own personal validation, their own personal ends to give them legitimacy as, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm real black in this space, right? But it's actually, it's almost using it in a sense that's, in a sense that's inauthentic versus, versus a black person who has some sort of position of power, authority, leadership, who is in it for liberation, which is, which is others focused as well. Right. And so they will bring the needs and concerns of black people to the table, no matter the cost, even if it means that at some point they're going to be excluded from that table. The black person who's in it for validation will go only so far if it looks like their blackness or their advocating for black people is going to diminish their power. The black person let's, let's who's make in it, it for liberation is all in. Let's make it plain here. It is more important for the witness to hear based upon what you guys have said based upon what you guys have written, based upon your podcast, based upon your ministry, I have reclaimed my dignity, my time, my identity in white spaces. It is more important for us to hear that than for us to receive an email inviting us to a conference yes. to speak that is going to give us financial stability and security in the short term. It's more important for us to hear you give us an intangible benefit that has been received from our ministry than for us to receive tangible benefits from white Christian spaces. Mm, that's it. That's, that's our way of saying that's why we believe. So understand this. When we made the decision to shift from our previous name to the witness, what were we trying to do? Well, we were trying to distance ourselves from a space that while good in and of itself and fine for a lot of people was not going to, to match our vision for our people, for you, the audience. Right. And so we had that conversation. Okay. So we're not going to be invited back to X, Y, and Z space. We know that. Right. Okay, cool. Well, okay. We're, we're not going to be invited back. And it's not like, Oh, we're just so brave and we're this and we're that. We can't, I, I'll just speak for me. I can't sleep at night. I want to be able to sleep. Mm. I want to be able to live with myself. I want to be able to look at myself in the mirror and not know that I and know that I didn't sacrifice an opportunity to spend the political capital or spend the religious capital or spend the relational capital necessary so that the people behind me could be free. And I had all this money and I had all these opportunities and I had all this acclaim and I had all these book deals and I had all, what good does that do for us? Now, there's levels to this and we recognize it. You know, we're not trying to be on the streets here. But the reality of the matter is that I think there are a lot of people that selectively wield blackness and selectively utilize blackness. And actually, and this is something that, you know, it, we're not above this, that, that selectively wield blackness in order to be the only black person in the room. In Speak order to receive it. validation as unique. Yep. Yep. In yep. order yep. to receive, and black men do this a lot, right? To, in order to be, to receive the validation from a father figure that we never received ourselves. So, so I'm getting my needs met by being in this room with white power brokers. And they're going to express pride in me 
which is touching on some gaps that I haven't worked out in therapy. And so I'm emotionally unavailable because of that, but I'm emotionally open to white folks. Mm. Mm, so mm, I get mm. my validation from them. And that's where that's and I where forget about my people. There can be only one magical Negro at a time attitude comes. It's a scarcity mentality. It's, it's a mess. And so we start blocking each other out and we start saying, ah, oh, well, you know, he good, but he ain't this. He ain't that. That's it's like, well, well, hang on here. Is it about the scarcity mentality that exists within predominantly white Christian spaces? Or is it about us being honest enough to admit that we are all tied in with the system that disadvantages our people? And so the system must change. And whatever we can do to change the system, we will do that. Sacrifices be damned. Right. That's why we say, no, we'll take the hits. No, they'll call us whatever. They'll call us Marxist. They'll call us liberal. We know it's coming. We'll take the hits. But the point is, do you, the listener, sitting in your living room, working out in the gym, driving in the car, taking care of your you know, work responsibilities, serving in your local church, do you have more equipment at the end of our podcast in order to live a free Black life in soul and in body than you did before? And if you do, mission accomplished. <laughs> and we might never get the validation. Mm-hmm. But are we committed? But you have to understand, we live, we stand at tradition. We stand at tradition of prophets who got killed for speaking the truth in the scriptures. We stand in a tradition of people like Fannie Lou Hamer, who we throw around all the time, who died with nothing. <laughs> we stand in that tradition. We stand in a tradition of people who didn't get their flowers when they were here. We stand in a tradition of people who did not get acclaimed, who did not have money, who, who did not achieve and see the mountaintop. They said, oh, y'all going to get there. I just won't be there with you. So which one do you want? Do you want validation or liberation? That's the point. So, I mean, this is all up in our business. I mean, this is something black folks really need to think about and ponder, <laughs> especially black men. Yeah. Here's, here's something meddling, else. Bro. Something else that came to mind in this framing that you put forth of validation and liberation. Um, having that framing is helpful because it helps us to be less territorial. Because we can say whoever is for our liberation, I'm cool with. Whoever's in it for validation is suspect, right? Now we're not writing them off, but we, we we need to see something else. We need to say something more. But I think that's so important because it's like in the Bible when Jesus' disciples came and say, "Hey, they're they're baptizing, they're preaching in your name." He's like, "What do I care? As long as the gospel's being preached, <laughs> yeah. do it." Yeah. Right. And that's it. Gets back to that scarcity mentality, right? If I'm not the one, you know writing the books, getting called by reporters, getting invited to the conferences, writing the articles. If I'm not the one, then it's a problem. That's a validation mentality. Mm. A liberation Mm. mentality is Mm. the more the better. Like we need all hands on deck. Whoever can do this work, who's for authentic, genuine liberation, let's do it. The other thing on the flip side is Understanding that that the validation mindset represents a truncated vision. It's a captive Hmm. vision. Because the validation mindset presumes that the measure of our success or effectiveness comes from the approval of white people 
rather than the liberation of black people. Uh, come on, dog. Now you preaching now. Validation says I am good, important, worthy, worthwhile. My life has meaning. My work has meaning to the extent that white people recognize it and celebrate it. Liberation says the people with power not only may never appreciate my work, they probably won't because it threatens their power, but that's okay because it leads to liberation for me and my people. And that's a vast difference. That's a vast difference. And I think we should talk a little bit about the idea of how do we undercut the, the validation, you know, yeah. desires that we have on the inside of us, right? Like how do we radically undercut that? How do we starve that? You know, okay, I can just speak um, real personally here. I'll, I, yeah, I, right, I know, I know you can too. For me as a writer, writing for certain evangelical outlets, and whatever you're thinking of is probably what I'm talking about, was it. It was the pinnacle. Mm -hmm. I can also remember thinking that speaking on a main stage at certain evangelical conferences was it. If I got that invite, I would have arrived. It would have meant my voice had meaning, import, all of that stuff. It didn't change in a moment or a minute. It was a series of events that basically I came to a point where I said, it's not worth it. It's not worth me putting on tap dance shoes and a, and a mask and dancing. because. What, here's what happened. There were certain things I felt compelled to say as a black man in America, as a budding historian, as someone who had experienced racism, especially in the church, that I felt I couldn't say if validation was the goal. And I, I, I couldn't have put it in that language at the time, but that's what was happening. And I said, it is more important to be rejected by some and free than accepted but still a slave wow bro that's heavy man you know and, and i think it's important again to say like we're still working through this yes like i think yes. we're in process yes which i think is a, a one way that we starve kind of our validation desires and our our thirst for validation i think we acknowledge the process that we're in, but I think we also need to place around ourselves strategic relationships and people who have permission to address these latent issues within our hearts, who have permission to say, why do you want to be there? Like, why do you feel the need to be there? Like, what's your, why? Why did you accept that? You know, aren't you, I mean, is what is that space doing for you? You know, how is that helping you? How is that expanding you? You know, think about it beyond just a financial benefit. Like, how is that actually, you know, changing your heart? How is it changing what you expect? Are your people there? Right? Whoever that may be. I think those are important questions that, you know, Jamar, our conversations have had. And then there's just so many people I can think of off the top of my head, you know, who have really had tough, hard conversations with me. But I think also, man, I think, um, being a being someone who celebrates and acknowledges people who look like you and honors 
the gift in them when they can't give you anything in return. Mm. I think that's so important. I think black people need to see other black people so enamored and celebratory of their accomplishments to fill in the gaps that exist with white validation, right? To fill in those gaps that would yearn for an applause from power, recognition from the empire. And I think if we are not celebrating one another, and again, we're not saying we're doing this great, but just trying. If we're not celebrating one another, and if we're not acknowledging one another, it breeds in us a sense that we're, we're competitors rather than complementary. Like we're going against each other for a couple of spots. You know, it's the whole premise of, you know, Black Boy Fly, Kendrick Lamar. Like there's only a certain amount of spots that could, certain amount of people that could get out of Compton. And I couldn't stand the people who got out. It's like, well, you got out, you know, <laughs> like you create your own spot. Like one person gets in, it should help all of us, right? And, and I think actually acknowledging the power that we see in other people and acknowledging the potential that we see in other people is very important for unpacking that stuff in our hearts. Yes, 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 yes. And you do a great job of that. Actually, I'm so grateful that you, you see black people, right? You see our struggles, you see our beauty, our joy, our creativity, all of that. You see it all. And you are so good about, telling us when you see it, whether individually or as a people. And it's so pastoral, <laughs> you know, that's the pastor side of you coming out, but it's also so vital and so necessary. Like you said, to counteract that impulse for validation, because guess what? The entire white supremacist narrative or the narrative of racial difference is designed to get black people and other people of color to seek validation from white people. That's the way the system is set up. It's not, it's not, a default or a flaw in you. That is the way it was designed is to, mm. because the, the, the narrative is that we are lesser and that everything we do is JV and varsity is whatever white people do. And so what's the goal? The goal is always to move from JV to varsity, right? You always want to be on the most elite team. You always want to be at the highest level. And what society has done is told us a story that if you want to be at the highest level, if you want to be varsity, if you want to be elite, you have to be white. But guess what? You're not white, but you have to get our approval. That's the next best thing. And so I just want to say yeah. that, that as we're in process, right, what we're doing is actively counteracting a narrative that is constantly being put in front of us, whether in entertainment sports, politics, economics, culture, even religion, right? This is where, this is where my hangups come from. Because in religion, the context that I learned Christianity, if you want to be a quote-unquote real theologian, you're reading white and European theologians to learn from them and to build on what they've done. If you want to be well-known, you have to be known by white Christians. They need to know your name, right? Like mm -hmm. all of this stuff, mm -hmm. all I'm saying is that's by design. And so what we're doing yeah. is the true, truly radical work of liberation. It's radical because it subverts the system. 
It subverts what the system not only has always told us, but is now constantly still trying to tell us. And so in order to counteract that, we need to recognize our, beautiful, our, our beauty. We need to say Black Lives Matter because that is a direct refutation of a society and a narrative that tells us that Black lives don't matter or that they matter less. And so this is rat this is incredibly subversive work which is why it's in what why it's so difficult. So just to I don't know put that in perspective for people hopefully it's help helpful for me and understand this is not a linear process. It's not once I sought validation now I seek liberation. It's not an on off switch or one line that you cross. It's a constant journey. It's a constant telling yeah. ourselves a different story. It's constantly happening. Yeah, and it's the belief I I really appreciate that you said that cuz I think it's a belief that Man, our spaces matter and our spaces are enough. Yes, come on. And if we never and if we never receive what we think we should from a broader context, that's okay. Yo. Like what 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 did we lose? This you know, what did what did we miss out on because they didn't see us when we saw each other? <laughs> this is this we saw back. each other and we saw them. Like, you know. <laughs> You said so much, man. Why you wait? Okay. So number one, this is why we have space. Ah, like I thought you was, I was going to let you go, man. I was going to let you go. I was alleying you, man. <laughs> so this is why spaces like the witness are so important. This is why, and you'll hear me say it more and more and more in the future, why building black institutions is are so important, right? Because we can offer things for each other that we're not getting from the broader society, whether intentionally or not, it's just the truth, right? But secondly, so we can say these spaces are enough, right? So uh, plug right for the witness, <laughs> right? Like it's it's cool. We're, we don't have the traffic that these other websites do. We don't have the money that these other websites do, but we're speaking, we're trying to speak more and more to our people and that should be enough. But the second thing is it actually loops back around to what we were talking about at the top of the show about Kamala Harris. She went to an HBCU. She went to to Howard University in Washington, D.C., yeah. Yeah. which I think is so profound on a couple levels. Number one, it shows that even as she's biracial, she is intentional about learning and participating in black culture. Right. So I think we'd have, I think we'd be having some very different and contentious conversations if Kamala hadn't shown, particularly by going to an HBCU, some sort of investment, positive investment in her black identity. Right. And that's, she's part of a, a sorority, right? Like all of these things matter in terms of not just having a lineage or history of African ancestry, but identifying with the Black community. The second reason it's important is I'm sure being president isn't something that just occurred to her in the last couple of years, right? <laughs> like for most people, this is kind of a lifelong pursuit and, and a trajectory that they set themselves on even in high school, but certainly in college and afterwards, right? So a, a more traditional path, a more typical path would have been to go to an Ivy League school, a predominantly white institution, right? But but her going to an HBCU, it's risky in the U.S. because it's white supremacist, right? She's the first um, person from an HBCU to be on a, on a national presidential ticket. Uh, that's huge, right? And so because of the way that predominantly Black institutions are often looked down upon, it might have been a detriment in her career. 
But now it's coming full circle. It's actually an asset as she seeks to identify with an extremely important uh, electorate in in black voters. Right. So it's just like. Mm -hmm. Don't look down on our stuff just because it's not their stuff. Man, it's so much that we could say here so much. I think we've we've hit our time. I think we've this conversation has run its course for today, but there's so many things to unpack here, so many ways that this validation and liberation framework plays itself out. And I just want to hear more like, you know, from our listeners, if you have any ways in which this plays itself out, let us know. I think this is an ongoing conversation that we'll have, you know, hopefully we'll write about it more in, you know, long form <laughs> in some other places later. Um, in the future, uh, but I just appreciate you for having this conversation, Jamar. This is, uh, this is, these are the conversations we have behind the scenes, and these are the conversations that you know we're having as we try to extend and advance uh, the mission of the witness. And just to put a exclamation point on it, we are in process. <laughs> so let's have grace for one another. That's good, bro. Let's do it. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?